0: Let me start by talking... I'm going to say I'm going to talk on two parables today, and if I can try to rescue these from somewhere in your past where they were used in a different way, at least in mine, and I think in yours as well. Let me start, though, with a question by asking what time is it? What time is it? Since maybe the Middle Ages when monks first put clocks on a wall so they could regulate the hours of their prayer we have answered the question, what time is it, with a number. We'll say it's 10 o'clock, it's 5.30, it's 3.15. It's a number, because we think of time as hours and minutes. But there's another way to think of time. It's to think of an era or a season in history, a period that you're living with. So if you measure time this way, you're not so much looking at a clock and giving me a number, you're looking at indicators that are happening around you, and you're giving me signs. The idea of understanding the times in the second sense is trying to interpret what is happening in your day so you know what to do about it. And my hunch is that since we've invented clocks, we measure time mostly by minutes and hours and miss the real time. Uh, Back in 2008, when the recession hit us, And we were, if you were invested in anything, you were losing money. Uh, I was in a room with uh, several millionaires, and uh, I was talking to one guy over to the side, and he looked at me and he said, Man, look at this room, Steve. Some of these people have lost 30, 40% of their savings. He said, They've lost literally millions of dollars. I think he was expecting sympathy. I just said, Gosh, I wish I could lose millions of dollars. So I went back to see my financial advisor, and I said, you know, these are really hard days, and I can't afford to keep putting money in this account for retirement if it's going to keep tanking the way that it is. We got halfway through the discussion, and she said, Steve, what time is it? I said, it's about 4.15, why do you ask? He said, no, I mean, what time is it? I mean, what is happening right now in the economy? What's happening in the market? What do you think is happening? I said, isn't that your job? She said, look at the clock. Is the big hand on the five or is the big hand on the seven? If the big hand is on the five, then it means as bad as things are, they're still going down. If things are on the seven, it means that you've already bottomed out and they might be on their way up. If you can tell me what time it is, she said, I can tell you what to do. The two parables that we're looking at this morning will do that. They'll tell us what time it is, and then they'll tell us what to do. I'll put a verse on the screen that kind of um, sets up the parables. It says, No one knows the day or the hour. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So you must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Do you hear the language? There it is. Do you hear or do you see the language about the day and the hour when the Son of Man comes? And finally, he finishes with a promise and says, when you least expect it, that's when the Son of Man will come. So when I was a kid and I was into things I shouldn't have been into, I'd tell myself, if you just expect it, he won't come. You can trick him. So in my early adolescence, maybe 12 years old, I was introduced to a movie called Thief in the Night. Many in this room have never heard of this movie, thank heavens. But those of us who saw it were forever stamped with that image. The movie begins with a woman waking up in bed, the alarm has gone off, and the radio is announcing that thousands, maybe millions of people are suddenly gone from the earth. They don't know whether it's an invasion of aliens and snatching people, or whether it is, as they said, this thing called the rapture that religious people believe in, turns out being the rapture. She gets up and goes down the hall into the bathroom and there in the sink, still running and vibrating, is her husband's razor. He's been taken away. She screams and that's only the first five minutes. The next two hours is her weaving her way through the city trying to avoid one world government who is finding people and stamping their foreheads with 666. See, you're laughing now. We were petrified of this. And then the movie ends with this song by Larry Norman. Uh... Called You've Been Left Behind. What an ending! Children died, the days were cold, a piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. Adios. (laughs) What? So every time we saw it, we were getting saved multiple times just in case we left a couple out. I mean, the last thing we wanted to do on this earth before the rapture was to confess so the record was clean. One afternoon, I was asleep in my room, and I woke up, and I opened the door, went down the hall, and I started yelling, hey, mom, dad. They didn't get an answer. I hadn't even thought of this movie, but I'd seen it. As I got into my mom and dad's room, it is always immaculate, bed was always made, nothing on the dressers, it was clean. Right in front of the bed and on the floor was my mother's dress in a heap. I yelled again and said, Mom, and nobody answered, and I thought to myself, I've missed the rapture. My mom never leaves her dresses on the floor like this. She's been snatched right out of her dress. I've missed the rapture. And the other half of my brain was wondering, why did he take her naked? (laughs) I mean, what kind of a place is heaven if it's full of naked people? What a sick place. So I went downstairs, and I started yelling my siblings' names, and nobody answered. I went into my sister's room, and I went, Jackie! And she was gone. And when I saw it, I went, because if it was a rapture, she'd have still been here. She was mean. So I knew whatever else it was, it wasn't a rapture. My point is, when you live in this kind of image of the end times, of the coming of the kingdom of God, You see the kingdom as this sudden invasion into your life. We would eat supper at the same table every night, and on the wall was a plaque that said, Go no place you would not like to be found when Jesus comes. Do nothing you would not like to be found doing. Say nothing you would not like to be found saying. When Jesus comes, do you see what this does to a young child as he's growing up? It does teach you vigilance. (laughs) But it gives you no security at all. Oddly enough, the parables that we're about to encounter are not here to teach us, only vigilance. I want to rescue them. They're here to teach us hope. They're here to give us confidence. I was always thinking about the coming of Jesus. I was never confident. And the odd thing is, the same culture that taught me to be vigilant undermined my confidence. Are you ready? Are you sure? Are you sure? Check again. Are you sure? Do you see it? Always looking, never ready. To be ready, I learn in these parables, is to not only anticipate something, it is to do so with confidence. And it is to do so being engaged in the thing you're looking forward to. So, my generation was full of anticipation, but we were not fully engaged. The current generation has pushed away from that fear and panic and, in my opinion, become virtually disinterested in the return of Christ altogether. Brian Blunt, the theologian, writes, We live at a strange paradox of time, at the same time that the Christian church has dropped its apocalyptic themes, and no longer talks about second comings and the return of Christ because they consider them too controversial of a subject, we don't all agree, and so we say nothing, at the same time, he says, the world has picked up the theme, and they are making movies, and they are writing language that speaks about the end of time, the annihilation of the human race, the meaningless of our existence. What better time than now for the church to step forward and say, we have a better message. It's a message of hope and confidence and optimism that keeps us fully engaged. So in Matthew chapter 25, there are two parables that do this. The first one is a parable of the bridesmaids, and you saw the graphic movie just a few moments ago, and the second one is the parable of the talents. And you know this story, don't you? You've heard it a thousand times. They go together. They're not two distinct parables. Specifically, look in verse 14 where Jesus says, and again the kingdom is like, and he tells the parable of the talents. So the flow of the chapter works like this. Verse 1, the kingdom of heaven is like, and here's the parable of the bridesmaids, and again, the kingdom of heaven is like, and here comes the parable of the talents. They go together. Both of them speak about people that are waiting for the return of someone. In the first one, it's the groom. In the second one, it's the master. Both of them have characters with something to manage. In the first thing, it's a lamp. In the second one, it's talents. Both of them have the return of the one they expect either the groom or the master. Both of them have a day of reckoning where he calls them in or he opens the door and they can go to the banquet. And both of them have a separation. There are people who make it and people who don't. And here is the tough part. Every time I learned these parables, there was this nagging voice inside of me that said, Be careful, Steve, because you might be one of the ones that doesn't make it. That's not Scripture talking. That's thief in the night talking. Can I retell the stories to you really quickly from the other side? Here. I want you to see yourself not as the five foolish bridesmaids. I want you to see yourself as the wise ones. Okay? And instead of seeing yourself as the third servant who buried his talent, see yourself as the first two who have their talents multiplied. So in the first one, there is a day of reckoning, a day when the groom returns, All ten bridesmaids are sound asleep, and suddenly someone wakes up and says, The groom is coming! Get ready! And Jesus goes on to say, The wise ones were the ones who were prepared for the hour when the groom returned. Think about that. The way to get into the kingdom in this parable is not by inviting Jesus into your heart. That may be in other parables. It is not in this one. The way to get into the kingdom in this parable is to live wisely. It is the wise ones who get into the kingdom, and it's the foolish ones who get locked out. So who are the wise ones? That's the question. What does wisdom look like in this parable? It doesn't look like someone up on a stage right now pontificating about parables. It doesn't look like some deep thinker coming up with proverbs that run our lives. Wisdom in this parable is simply being ready for the hour when the groom returns. Because the point of the parable is the groom is already on his way. Back in those days when they had lamps, they had them primarily for one reason. They were oil lamps. And the reason was not so they could see where they were going. It wasn't a flashlight. It was so you could see them. Even to this day, writes Kenneth Bailey in the Middle East, it is unthinkable for a young woman or an old woman, to go anywhere at night without a lamp. To do so would be unsafe, and to do so would risk her reputation. What kind of a woman is she? If she wants to walk around in the dark, what might she be doing in the dark and with whom? And if someone should come upon her and they should assault her, they would at least be doing it in the light of a lamp. But when they walk with their lamps, he said, they almost never put their lamps near the ground where they could see where they were going. No, they carried their lamps up near their face so you could see them. Wisdom in this parable is coming to the groom at a time with integrity and openness so the groom knows you. Wisdom in this parable is not knowing the groom. Wisdom is living in the light of integrity so that the groom knows you. You say, Where's the good news? It's a wedding. It's not a trial. It's a wedding. Am I the only one who grew up with visions of the kingdom as a giant white seat throne judgment of God where people are sifted apart and those who know Jesus get in and those who don't know Jesus go? Am I the only one who thought all of life was a trial that ended in the courtroom where the judge, God Himself, the Father was stationed at the throne and directly next to you was your defense attorney, Jesus Christ. And He was going to stand up for you. He was going to be your, quote, advocate. Not here. The coming of the kingdom of God here is not a trial that ends in a courtroom. It's a long aisle that ends at an altar where you are brought into union with the one you love. It's a wedding. Say, what does this? This changes everything about the way you think. God is not someone you are trying to impress, hoping someday you'll be good enough. God is your beloved. The laws in the Old Testament are not written by someone who knows what they want and who gets angry when you violate the law. No, no. The laws in the Old Testament are actually vows. That one person says to another when they are brought together in union. To sin is not simply to transgress the law of God. To sin is to break the covenant with one that you love. Do you not know that all of the Bible begins in a wedding, it ends in a wedding, and there's a wedding smack dab in the middle at the wedding feast in Cana. Which Jesus called his first and most important sign. In other words, if you want to know what the kingdom is, you have to think of it as a wedding. Did you notice that of the three main allegories used for God in the Old Testament one of a father, one of a husband, and one of a king the most prominent metaphor in the Old Testament, wait for it, is not a king. It's a husband. All those prophets that you're afraid to read, all of those prophets see the union with God as a marriage. And this is why they consistently compare idolatry to adultery. Idolatry in the Old Testament is not a sin, it's a tryst. It's a violation of one's vows. So when you think of this first parable and you hear those words screaming at you, be ready. You might miss it. I hope this morning, in a moment, you'll walk forward and you will say, it's a wedding and I can't wait. Are you there? Yes? So the first parable says you got to be ready because the bridegroom is on the way. And the second parable says, and this is what it means to be ready. When I watched Thief in the Night, after the movie was over, there was always a youth pastor came onto the stage. And now that he had us scared out of our minds, he would say, do you want to be ready for this day? Here's all you must do. Bow your heads, say this prayer, and now that you've said it, you are ready for the thief in the night. Man, I didn't feel ready. Uh Uh-uh, not for long. Because I knew I was going to see it again, and there'd be something else cropping up. It seemed to me, even then, to be a pretty shallow answer To what was a deep, nagging fear in my bones. In other words, it seemed, here, come forward, accept Jesus, now go home. It seemed like a 25-cent answer to a $10 problem. What this parable tells us is what it means to be ready. says Jesus, to be ready is to be like one of the servants. The master calls him in and he says, I'm going to take my property and I'm going to divide it up amongst you. Back in those days, a talent was not a, it wasn't a spiritual gift. A talent was an amount of property, usually money, that was equivalent to about $1,000. And so he calls the first one in and he says to him, Here's $5,000, in other words, 15 times your annual salary, here. Calls the second one in and says, here are $2,000 or about six times your annual salary. Calls the third one in and says, here is $1,000 or three times your annual salary. That's a lot of money. There's enough to do something with. These guys have won the lotto but if you read the story more closely you find out it wasn't luck it was design Matthew so Jesus said he called them in and gave to each of them according to their ability in other words He wasn't just doling it out. He was assessing each person's ability and then giving them the money according to their ability. It wasn't with strings attached, and yet he had expectations. So, what was he looking for? That's the question. And Matthew never tells us, Luke does. Luke tells the same story and Luke says as the master got ready to go on a journey, listen to the language, he was going on a journey where they would appoint him as king. He called the servants in and said to them, here, put this money to good use while I'm gone. Biblical scholars tell us that's a bad translation. Put this money to use is a bad translation. What it literally means is do good business with this money. Fully occupy yourself with this money. Why? Because the day is coming when the king is going to return to his kingdom and he's going to want to see if you are fully occupying yourself with things that interest the king. I figured that out. It changed the entire parable. The parable is not about me finding my spiritual gift so I can just become self-actualized. Become a better you. Learn your spiritual gift. Develop yourself. The king, or the parable, is about taking what God has given you, whether friends, whether opportunities, whether gifts, whether money, and investing it into things that the king is investing in. so that the kingdom you are building is always the king's, not yours. The poor third servant, poor guy, he has such a bad image of God. He comes forward and he says to the master, I knew you to be a a harsh man. (laughs) Oh, thanks. Thanks. You know, you reap where you didn't sow. And, and so what I did was I was afraid and, and, and I buried it and I put it in the ground. And here, this, this goes back to you now, which is, a, by the way, a Jewish colloquialism. It's a way of saying, this isn't my problem anymore. You see what is fundamentally wrong with this servant? He is caught between two dilemmas. That, listen, that every talented gifted person in this room is feeling right now. One of them is he feels the obligation of having to produce more. God has given me something that is valuable, oh man, to whom much is given, much is required. And they feel only duty, never joy. They never say, "Man, did I get lucky?" They go, "Doggone it! I got gifted. Now he's gonna come looking for more." Obligation. The second thing is the fear of losing even the thing you have. If you don't use it, you lose it. You know. If you don't. Ju- Put it to work. God will take it away from you. He can turn it off at any time. I have felt both of these things. I know at this age what my talents are. Oddly enough, they have always produced a sense of obligation, never a sense of joy, and always the fear that someday God would just turn off the faucet. I don't know why I didn't bother to ask, why would He do that? The Father takes delight when you produce more. And so because he is paralyzed between the obligation to produce, produce, produce and the fear of losing what he already has, he recedes and does nothing. Wouldn't it be easier if God has given you something this morning, if God has given you talent or money or a network of friends or a position or something around you that you have instead of seeing this as an obligation to do the Master's work, wouldn't it be easier to say this is an invitation to join in the Master's happiness? That is the point of the parable. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you master over many. Come, and enjoy your master's happiness."